Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. From the very first weeks of the Great War in August 1914, medical practice was overwhelmed, not simply by the mass casualties being produced by the battlefront, but by the types of trauma to which human bodies were now being subjected. The result was a transformation over four years, not merely of warfare, but of medicine. Ideas and hypotheses that had been developed in the thrilling decades of laboratory discovery and in research hospitals prior to 1914 were implemented on a gigantic scale, and new ones were developed and tested and put into practice in a matter of months and sometimes weeks. By 1919, medicine was utterly different than had been just five years before. My guest, Thomas Helling, is professor of surgery and head of the Division of General Surgery at the University of Mississippi in Jackson. He has vast personal experience in military medicine, trauma, and critical care, and has published both in scientific journals and in the history of medicine. He's the author, most recently, of The Great War and the Birth of Modern Medicine, which is the focus of our conversation today. Thomas Helling, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about your background, because as I was saying to you before we began, this makes you unique from any historian of science or medicine I ever have uh, spoken to. You uh, are not merely a surgeon, but you have been a military surgeon. So you're bringing uh, another lifetime of experience to this book. Yes. You know, um, I've always been fascinated by the military. Um, And during my educational process, I managed to uh, obtain one deferment after another to allow me to complete my education. Um, and, uh, after I went into practice, um, after a number of years, even though I would keep in contact with the army recruiter, I, you know, kind of put everything on a back burner, but with the Gulf war in 1990, uh, I decided, well, maybe this is the time to, uh, take my talents to where it might be very, very useful on the battlefield. So, uh, the recruiter came by and I said, look, I think I want to join. And he said, fine. Um, as a as a surgeon, and I thought that my uh, my abilities would be a perfect fit for what I perceived as as a huge uh, uh, war uh, with mass casualties and so forth. Um, however, by the time I uh, processed all my papers and was ready to be sworn in, the war was over. So he said, "Well, listen, you don't have to join. You can, um, you know, nothing's been." Uh, you haven't been commissioned. It's, it's okay just to back out. And I said, no, I think I'll do it. So uh, I uh, joined the Army Reserves um, and spent nine years in the Reserves. I was not 
ever deployed, but I thoroughly enjoyed my experience. Um, it's a wonderful organization, and I think I uh, you know, met some very motivated, dedicated people and learned a lot about military medicine in the process, which is a little bit different than civilian medicine. So it was a, it was a good experience. I'm glad I did it. Uh, no regrets. Which we'll be talking about um the differences and the similarities and also the differences. There's a, a passage on page 42 of the, uh, well, the, of the advanced text in describing um, basically the, the, how awful the, the, the flood of casualties coming back from the, the front at Verdun and the conditions under which surgeons are working. And then you say, yet make no mistake, when they stood over their subjects now painlessly asleep, these same surgeons were filled with vigor as if the fatigue of past cases left as surely as uh, driven by spikes of whiskey. They were intoxicated with their skill and boldness and slicing through human hide and into cavities that held nothing pretty to lesser men, but to them, the exquisite slaughter of weaponry. Coils of intestines belching the green of bilious digestion and coated with a beautiful crimson of dribbled blood excited them as much as the sight of seductive women. With supreme enthusiasm, they toiled, hand sliding soundlessly over chaotic viscera, Fingers pinched and clicked silver instruments that is projections of a guileless intensity weaved and stitched in minute moments that pushed time and tiredness into the realms of irrelevance. It was a passion as holy as blessed sacraments and as total as transubstantiation. Wow. Um, <laughs> if I had written that, that might be like libelous, but I'm going to take that as, I'm going to take that as autobiographical. You know, um, Trained as a surgeon, uh, we have perfected our skills, uh, much like any craft person does. And we are supremely delighted when we can take those skills and those years of training and that expertise and actually benefit mankind. I mean, I, I think that's kind of a trite statement. Nevertheless, that's exactly what it is. And when we are perched over a, a horribly sick individual, whether from trauma or disease of uh, other types, and we can take our skills, our craft, and directly apply it to that person and hopefully almost sometimes resurrect them, uh, we are uh, immensely gratified. Uh, and it does instill us with an enthusiasm and a sense of purpose uh, that I am sure other, other people and their crafts experience as well. But certainly that is, that's the way it is for surgeons. And, and because all craft um, at its heart has some sort of secret knowledge. Now that might be made um, sort of ritualized at some point, but all craft simply because of the amount of experience required to, to perform it to an adequate level, let alone a superior level, requires a massive amount of knowledge, which cannot be conveyed to a friend. It can only be understood by another initiate. And of course, surgery has that. But also, it has also then, you have your hands in the midst of life and death. Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, we don't, you know, I, I think uh, I think we look at it simply as a skill we have, and this is what we will address with our skill. Um, it may seem uh, a bit horrible to maybe the uninitiated with us. It's uh, simply a fact of sewing this to that stopping this bleeding and that bleeding, um, stitching this, stitching that, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, repairing what damage has been done. And uh, I, uh, it's, 
it, it is personally, uh, uh, we don't necessarily at that moment in time feel any sacred commitment. We simply know that we can help that individual. Mm-hmm. The um, you've, This is uh, one of many books you've written, articles you've written on the history of medicine and combat. Uh, how did you get interested in this in the subject? Well, I spent a number of years in my uh, career uh, dealing with civilian trauma, um, the victims of uh, uh, gunshot wounds or motor vehicle collisions. Um, and uh, I think most surgeons would agree that that uh, part of their profession is in itself rewarding. Uh, because we have, uh, we were able to take these uh, seriously injured individuals and somehow patch them together. Um, so uh, I took an interest in that and uh, did some uh, clinical research in the process of that, and also became interested in how we got here as surgeons, historically speaking, and. Um, that became more and more fascinating to me until I started writing about it. Uh, and it wasn't hard to imagine that I could extrapolate that very easily to military trauma, a bit different, but nevertheless, um, the same awful injuries uh, of, of a much greater magnitude quite frequently, but the same awful injuries that we could address uh, with the skills we had learned over decades and, and even centuries. Sorry. So... Uh, so that's how I kind of got interested in it. So I noticed in your CV, you've been sort of working backwards. And so you've, you've just, you've discussed Vietnam. You've discussed uh, your, your, your one, one awarded book was on surgery in the Pacific. And you've certain now you've, you've worked your way back to the great war. Um, as I alluded to in the, um, in the intro, uh, in the first month of the great war uh, in Belgium and the, France, uh, surgeons are seeing, um, they're seeing trauma, use the word trauma. Um, could you describe uh, what trauma means? Because they're seeing trauma in a way that they've never seen trauma on human bodies before, not just on, I, 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 in, in such a mass scale. Well, the, the word trauma uh, is often taken to imply uh, psychological trauma, emotional trauma. And we use that probably more frequently in civilian uh, life than um, than its true meaning. Trauma is the result of a of an external force applied to the body. Mm-hmm. Um, we you hear on the news about blunt force trauma. Well, that's the result of being hit somewhere uh, by a blunt object and uh, the damage that that produces. So when I talk about trauma, I talk about that type of trauma. Um, now, there is a chapter in this new book that uh, deals with psychological trauma, and that's, of course, very real, too. Uh, most of the book is taken up, of course, with this uh, 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 concept of external injury by some means, gunshots, shrapnel, uh, some other blunt force object. So that's what I mean by trauma most of the time. And, and so, as you, I think, as, as you say somewhere, they couldn't have seen that many. It was impossible by 1914 to see that many car accidents. Um, right. But suddenly they're seeing injuries of a kind that even those who must have been veterans, and there's a couple of them, we'll get to them. I think Mignon was a veteran of the Franco-Prussian War. He was a very young man then. But they had not seen anything like that in the Franco-Prussian War. This is this is 
this is blunt force trauma. Many people are experiencing trauma to their bodies on an unprecedented scale. The uh, I think the major reason was the use of high explosives in artillery. Uh, in fact, I think I made mention in the book oh, that yeah. uh, one of the doctors said that there were some uh, battles that were nothing more than artillery duels. Um, and such violence to the human frame was almost unimaginable. Uh, the tearing and ripping and, and uh, uh, avulsion of tissue was just unbelievable. And the, the other issue was it occurred in such numbers that the surgeons were simply overwhelmed in how to deal with these people flooding back to their aid stations and even back to field hospitals. They had no, I, I mean, they had probably at any one time 20 or 30 people, I'm just imagining, with injuries that needed immediate attention. And there was only one or two people available to deal with them. So what do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, they were just simply overwhelmed. And a lot of these people laid around, as I said, uh, neglected. Um, the evacuation chain was poorly developed at the at the start of the war. And I think that's what uh, Mignon addressed specifically. Um, it, it was not a good situation for the severely wounded. So we're used to the idea of the offense leading to improvements in defense. We don't think about that in terms of medicine. But as you made quite clear, um, shrapnel exploding and penetrating projectiles, I mean, as you say, it's simply the trauma of high explosive detonating. It's going to do terrible things to the, the body. Poison gas. We can go on down the yeah. list. Uh, shell shock. These things all lead then and consequentially, not just to defense or counterattacks, but trauma surgery, plastic surgery, orthopedic surgery, psychiatric therapy. Uh, the list is really, as you say, the Great War is the father of modern medicine. Right. And you, you mentioned how I'm sort of going backwards. Well, I don't have much interest in going back any further because of that, that, that principle, in my mind, the Great War ushered in the era of modern surgery and modern medicine. And Beyond, before that point, um, yes, uh, surgeons were learning about physiology and anatomy and, and some degree how to care for rather simple wounds as in the Franco-Prussian War. Um, but it was really the Great War that, that brought into focus the magnitude of violence that could be inflicted on humans and the ability to care for mass casualties in a in a responsible and effective way. So, which brings us to triage, which I should have realized is a is a term that goes to the very first months of the Great War. Um, it's uh, it's a way of a way of thinking and seeing and how to deal with injury, um, and it's brought about because of this speed of conflict and the severity of of the trauma that people are experiencing. Triage was a, was a French concept that meant literally to sort. And the process was to sort through casualties uh, uh, that one uh, had before them and decide who could be saved uh, the quickest. Uh, and th- that it doesn't mean who was most severely injured because there were Unfortunately, many individuals laying around with ghastly wounds who, despite the amount of effort, were not going to survive. And, and sadly, those people were pushed aside in favor of treating the patients who could be most effectively and quickly be uh, salvaged. And that is the process, literally, of sorting. Now, the other, the other part of that is that there were many people with relatively minor injuries who could wait uh, days before definitive treatment. 
uh, what what the surgeons were basically looking for as they walked through these uh, lines of uh, of patients, bloody bandaged patients, who had the injuries that they could within uh, maybe an hour or two fix and and allow that patient to eventually recover. So part of then related to this, we, we discussed the, the, the floods of casualties, the evacuation procedures. Let's talk about um, basically the creation of the ambulance and the various people that are involved with this. And then with mobile surgical units, as they're, because as I understand it, at first the, the traditional idea is to take people back to a hospital. Um, but eventually the hospitals begin to get closer and closer and closer to the front. Medical procedure gets closer and closer and closer to the front line. You know this uh, this process of early surgical care uh, near the near the front lines uh, was was probably the the most significant advance in military medicine uh, produced by the the Great War. Um, in times before, the the patients were merely patched up at aid stations, first aid stations, literally. And then uh, they awaited evacuation miles to the rear where there were fixed hospitals and surgeons who were well out of harm's way to more or less at leisure address these injuries with their surgical procedures and, and whatnot. Um, this, of course, resulted in a number of uh, probably preventable deaths that Mignon quickly uh, identified and felt that instead of the Instead of the soldier going to the surgeon, the surgeon must go to the soldier. Uh, and he brought his surgeons out of their uh, encampments far to the rear and put them in, in fairly mobile field hospitals that he termed ambulances. Uh, ambulance is a French term, which means a mobile, mobile uh, medical facility. And these uh, ambulances were then put uh, within earshot of the front line, sometimes so close that the surgeons got fairly jittery um and so did the patients by the way who had just who had just escaped you know an artillery barrage and they were taken to a field hospital and they still could hear the explosions and thought i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna die here um the surgeons probably felt likewise sometimes but what did uh, result from that is that these uh, severe injuries, these these injuries producing um, uh, bleeding and contamination were quickly addressed. Uh, the bleeding was stopped, the contamination was cleaned, and the patients were bandaged and then sent back to the rear areas where further surgery could be done on a much more stable patient. So it, it became all ab about uh, a matter of speed and a matter of time. Speed, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, the first principle of trauma surgery, and again, I refer to trauma as an external force applied to a, a human. The principle, the first principle of trauma surgery is stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding, and uh, that is the first task of a frontline surgeon: stop the bleeding. Of course, bleeding, uh, and I, I don't know if you'll talk about this in a little bit, bleeding, of course, produces uh, 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 a condition called shock. Well, let's and talk about that, because I found the discussion of shock was one of the most interesting things in the book. I had, I had uh, and it's, it, it's almost philosophical. 
<laughs> what shock is. Could you t- so how far back does the discussion of shock go? That was one of the things that I found very interesting. Well, shock was recognized back in the 16th century, 17th century, uh, as a condition where uh, 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 there there was felt to be some insult to the nervous system, and these these people affected by this clinical condition they called shock um, were uh, sort of pale and lifeless and apathetic and, and laid around and and many of them eventually kind of dwindled away and, and expired. Um, it wasn't until the late 19th century that any association was made with blood loss. Now, people realized uh, from ancient times that um, if, a, if a person were uh, uh, traumatized and, and bled out before them, of course they were going to die. So they knew that there was some association uh, uh, of life with circulating blood. They just didn't realize that uh, the bleeding that might occur that's not obvious uh, would have the same effect eventually, that the, that the circulation would diminish, uh, the heart would fail, and the, and the patient would, would die. I mean, we all have to have oxygen going to our brain and our heart to sustain those two vital organs, uh, among other organs, of course. So, um, but it wasn't until the late 19th century, the work of, uh, of George uh, Kreil, uh, that and others, uh, that really there was a, an association of blood loss and this condition called shock. Now, we, we talk about shock a lot, like we talk about trauma. Shock, you know, uh, I was shocked by this or shocked by that. Um, this shock, when I talk about shock, it is a clinical condition. Um, eventually known to be due to progressive blood loss and the failing circulation that uh, results. And, and one uh, certainly has seen people in shock because uh, those who faint are in a form of shock. And we look at these people at, who have fainted and they're pale and they're, and they're unresponsive and their, their uh, skin is cool and clammy mm-hmm. um, and they, of course, eventually respond to uh, various ways to restore blood return to the heart and so forth. But so shock is uh, can occur in many forms, but traumatic or hemorrhagic shock is something uh, distinctive, um, especially in, in trauma situations. And if not corrected, can be lethal. So it, the, the shock that they're experiencing, well, and this gets into the, the discovery the discovery of blood pressure and the ability to measure blood pressure. Um, and then now you've got these men who have experienced traumatic, are experiencing um, hemorrhagic shock. Some of it's not always immediately obvious, I would imagine, because some of them it's due to concussion. Would that be right? Yeah. Some of the, uh, yes. Well, even, even more important than that, uh, blood loss can occur from uh, such uh, events as a fractured bone, uh, as uh, internal bleeding into the chest or abdomen from uh, a penetrating injury, shrapnel or a bullet. Uh, So you might see a a victim laying there, uh, no obvious external hemorrhage. They're pale. They have a thready pulse. when, When they were able to measure blood pressure, eventually a low blood pressure. But you, but you look and say, well, gee, it can't be blood loss because I don't, they're not bleeding. Well, they are bleeding. They're bleeding into their leg or they're bleeding into the belly or they're bleeding into their chest. Uh, 
And uh, of course, that wasn't very apparent in those days before sophisticated radiography or other diagnostic methods. It was you, you simply went purely on your clinical examination, your physical examination. And many of these people, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't figure out how could this person um, be so apathetic and pale and a thready pulse and eventually die when, when there wasn't any bleeding. Well, there was bleeding. Mm-hmm. They just didn't, couldn't see it, didn't appreciate it. Um, so one of the interesting things about this is that you say you don't want to go farther back, but the, the uh, a lot of this stuff, as I alluded to in the uh, intro, uh, to the conversation, this a lot of things have been going on in research hospitals um, in Cleveland, in Baltimore, in in Heidelberg, in London, in Paris, and now all these things can start to be deployed in a really uh, unfortunate mass experiment uh, with with the wounded, and one of these would be blood transfusions. Is it? Yes. Uh, well, that was that was of course. One has to appreciate that if shock, if this potentially lethal condition <clears throat> is due to blood loss, the logical treatment is blood replacement, right? I mean, that, I mean that's, that is still the principle in the 21st century. So George Crile, of course, uh, uh, was a pioneer in the use of blood transfusions, um, uh, and it was f- far different uh, procedure than than today's blood transfusions. He had to literally hook an artery uh, 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 to a vein in the donor and recipient. And his first experience with that, as I, as I, I think I mentioned in the book, is uh, exactly that. And his wife was in attendance at that time when he did that procedure and started uh, uh, infusing the donor's blood into the recipient. And the recipient peaked pinked up and his wife stood there and said, I think I've something like, I think I've witnessed the miracle of the resurrection because mm-hmm. this guy just suddenly came to life. He got his mm-hmm. cheeks got rosy. And, and, and the funny thing was that the poor donor, uh, Kyle was so impressed by the, the results of this quick transfusion. The poor donor donor got paler and paler and almost went into shock himself <laughs> until yeah. Carl realized it and stopped the, and stopped the infusion of, of his artery into the, into the uh, uh, recipient's vein. That's quite a, quite a story. Yeah. So, so uh, Carl, uh, so some of these uh, attempts at transfusions were still carried out in the first decade of the 20th century. And by the time of the great war, uh, there were a couple of, uh, people, uh, the Robertsons, uh, one Canadian, I think one was uh, British, uh, who started using blood transfusions via uh, needles in the vein instead of a direct connection of, of blood vessels and and uh, began to understand how blood could be preserved and began to understand what blood typing was all about and, uh, and eventually developed this procedure as a usable uh, as usable therapy for hemorrhagic shock on the battlefield. So that was a that was a major advance in the treatment of shock. It's it strikes me that one of the uh, on page sixty six you des- describe the discovery that when you add sodium citrate to the blood, you can keep it from coagulating, start to preserve it. And that strikes me as we talk about penicillin and other medical miracles of the twentieth century, but that's one of the great. That has to be one of the greatest medical advances was the the ability to preserve blood. Um, given the way, as you just said, that this is this is the procedure to this moment when we're dealing with shock. Yes, and you know why blood is so important, and that and that is true. The the uh, storing blood for a period of time was uh, critical 
in and using it in a practical manner for for battlefield trauma. The reason being that although we can restore blood pressure with other types of fluids, blood contains that all-important element of the red blood cell. The red blood cell is the only cell capable of actually carrying oxygen. And the, the, the basic definition of shock is the failure to deliver oxygen in sufficient amounts to sustain tissues. Oxygen is the key, and the only way to carry it to tissues, at least in this day and age even, is through red blood cells, and red blood cells, the only way to get those is to transfuse blood. So that is the key. Uh, we can give fluids to raise blood pressure and all that business temporarily. Yes, that's good, but we need those red blood cells to carry the oxygen, and oxygen is what ultimately the tissues need to keep alive whether it be brain tissue or heart tissue or, or skin or muscle or, or kidneys or whatever. It's got to be oxygen. Is there anything we still don't understand about shock? I mean, is there still some mystery to shock other than the blood loss? I mean, or how it's, how it's caused? I, I think that, that, uh, I think that blood loss, blood replacement is still the key um, what we don't understand about shock is that after a while, however, and we, we learned this sort of in the Vietnam conflict, after because, because in the Vietnam conflict, everything was used to raise blood pressure, including blood transfusions, but also other kinds of intravenous fluids that did not have red blood cells in them, like saline and all that business. And what we learned in the Vietnam conflict is that if we don't give blood and we don't give it soon enough, even if we give other types of fluids to try to raise the pressure, <clears throat> we, uh, we, we see evidence of injury to the small blood vessels called capillaries. Um, they don't hold, it, hold fluid like they should. And we, we began to see the sequelae of prolonged shock, and that is damage to the lungs, damage to the kidneys. So, uh, yes, there is still, uh, I think, our, 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 our biggest um, challenge in the treatment of shock is how to get, how to stop the bleeding early enough and how to get blood into people early enough. Um, because we, if we don't, we see uh, progressive damage to the, to the blood vessels themselves. And the blood vessels are key to keeping this fluid circulating uh, uh, in a closed uh, circulatory compartment. So um, those are some of the challenges of shock currently. Are there any other uh, uh, avenues of, of therapy, um, uh, maybe uh, nothing that has really uh, made a whole lot of difference so far, but research obviously is still going on. Uh, well, I want to go through um, three people and sort of topics now in, in relatively brisk fashion. Uh, Marie Curie and the x-ray, Harvey Cushing and neurosurgery, and Owen Thomas and the orthopedic splint. Those don't all sound equal, but it will, as we'll see, as, as listeners will discover, the orthopedic splint turns out to be amazingly important in ways I would not have anticipated. Uh, so Marie Curie, uh, one of the only people, I think the only per, one of two people to get two Nobel Prizes, um, famous yeah. as a pioneering woman in science, but also uh, uh, not only in, in not only uh, experimental scientist uh, at the at the heart of the discovery of radiation, but then someone who then used it uh, in a very unusual uh, a very unusual combination of, of, of gifts. You know, she took uh, uh, Röntgen's uh, mysterious uh, ray X rays, and and uh, 
implemented a way to bring those to the battlefield to be used diagnostically. Now, before the Great War, uh, certainly people knew about Röntgen's rays. We call them X-rays. Um, they were more of a curiosity than a particularly useful diagnostic uh, tool. Uh, many of his machines uh, were, as I said, idling in the back rooms of hospitals, not really uh, uh, there, but not really being used. And the Great War and Marie Curie and all her energy, uh, uh, she and her and her fame and her connections as a result of those Nobel Prizes was able to coerce uh, uh, people um, of society, perhaps, in France to um, take these machines, put, put them on trucks, and take them into the battlefield and use them on recently uh, wounded uh, soldiers. So what was, an uh, that, what, was, what was an x-ray machine at that time? What was it like? And how did, how did you operate it? Well, it was a rather cumbersome device, but not as cumbersome as you might think. It, there was a coil and a, and a generator, uh, and of course they had to use radiographic plates, uh, much as they do now, quite frankly. But these machines were quite capable of being loaded into the trucks available at the time and uh, uh, in a caravan of three or four trucks. Um, you know, they look far, fairly flimsy compared to today's vehicles, of course, but they were taken uh, to the near the battlefield to some of these advanced ambulances, these advanced surgical stations, and actually set up to, to uh, x-ray uh, soldiers. So, it, you know, it, it, they were cumbersome devices. They required some energy to, of course, operate, and, and the, the, the trucks themselves generated that energy, that electricity. Um, but once they were set up, they, they worked fairly efficiently uh, in uh, getting these people, much like we do now, put them on a table, put a plate underneath them, uh, put the coil above them and, and let the, let the x-rays fly. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, and, well, I'm just going to say uh, my best friend, uh, Steve Cho is a professor of uh, nuclear medicine at the university of Wisconsin. He'll, he'll be listening to this. He'll want me to ask this, um, <laughs> uh, that we've now got, uh, roughly a uh, hundred and, uh, 10 years of diagnostic practice in interpreting weird pictures of things inside the body. She had none. So they've got the equipment, they've got it on trucks, they've got it at these these Ford ambulances. Then begins the problem, doesn't it? Because they can take those pictures, but what do those pictures mean? Well, they. Uh, I, I think there was enough familiarity by that time with what x-rays could and couldn't do. And, and usually when you take a plain x-ray of someone, you see fairly identifiable structures, namely the skeleton. Mm-hmm. And, and to some degree, some uh, slight uh, uh, flavors of, of soft tissue, like lungs pre- predominantly. And you see foreign bodies. Mm-hmm. So what they could see with these, without much experience or, mm-hmm. or history, of, is, is a broken bone. And, and um, foreign bodies, and particularly, well, I know we're going to get to Harvey Cushing, but in particular, uh, foreign bodies in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but nevertheless, foreign bodies anywhere. Uh, and, and also, uh, you know, fractures that needed to be splinted um, because, as we'll see with the Thomas splint, uh, bad fractures produce a lot of bleeding, and a lot of bleeding produces shock. So, so the, uh, it was... So this is this is so unfamiliar now to us, based on you know uh, 
most of, for most of us, 40 years of watching medical dramas. Um, but that up until this point, the only way that you can find a fracture is if it hurts. someone feels the pain and then the doctor can feel it with their fingers and find out where the fracture is. Right. That's correct. You know, yes. Until that time, uh, of course, if with with what we call open or compound fractures, if, if a bone was sticking out of the skin, that was yeah, that's, a that, that, that helps. But <laughs> but you're right. The only the only way to diagnose these beforehand was to examine the patient, look for deformities of the arm or leg or whatever. Uh, the the crunchiness, as we say, of, of tissue <laughs> might give it away too, and 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 of course the the severity of of pain as we might manipulate a fractured extremity was exquisite. So yeah, until, but, but other than that, no, we, we didn't have a clue until we were able to see through the body with x-rays. And uh, James Garfield, president of the United States died because of a, a very small bullet that no one could find inside his body, uh, which eventually caused an infection. Um, uh, cor- correct. So it's, uh, and these are, and some of these men are coming with uh, God knows how many pieces of shrapnel in their body, and not just a small 32 caliber bullet. That's correct. That's correct. And, uh, you know, even, even nowadays with shrapnel injuries, you look at a, you look at a patient you, you, and you, you take an image of them and you see countless numbers of small uh, pieces of shrapnel. And you have to imagine that some of those have penetrated uh, colon and intestine. And if you don't fix it, they're going to eventually die. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a mess. It's a, just a mess. Um were they able? We had, you had said earlier with the shock that there's sort of the internal bleeding. Could could Curie was she able to develop techniques by the end of the war to discover internal bleeding? No, uh, unfortunately, I think that uh, the use of X-rays, while it was beneficial to a, a number of of uh, patients, uh, was fairly confined to uh, bone. Um, maybe uh, they had some idea of, of uh, say, blood in the chest or something like that, because that would show up with a with a plain X-ray. But um, were, they were really confined to injuries of, of bone and soft tissue. They couldn't really tell much about the abdomen. In fact, we really couldn't do that until the advent of uh, computerized tomography. Mm-hmm. So, and that was in the 1970s. So. Um, yeah, they were they were limited, but it was but it was certainly better than what they had had before. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it and it, provi- and, it, and it demonstrated the usefulness of X-rays. If it could be done in a in a fashion that, that Curie uh, organized uh, in portable uh, units, it could certainly be utilized uh, in hospital settings. Yes, so I imagine this then leads to the post-war explosion of X-ray units like. Everywhere, because because yes. certainly the, there's a they they were driving down the price of making them by making a lot of them. Yes, and there must have been a lot of spares to pass around. I would imagine that's probably. <laughs> I imagine you could actually find that pretty easily. Army, sur- army, army surplus, right? Yeah, army surplus X-rays. Um, <laughs> so related this Harvey Cushing and neurosurgery. Um, Harvey Cushing is a fascinating individual. He, he is. <laughs> Extremely intelligent, extremely motivated, extremely demanding, um, and he he had little regard for the neurosurgery of the day when he began his uh, interest in it um, at Johns Hopkins and then at uh, in Boston at uh, the Brigham Hospital. Um, he felt he toured Europe. He saw some of the 
surgeons who, who dabbled in brain surgery, and he was appalled by most of them. Uh, their technique was sloppy, uh, certainly nothing to his standard. And uh, he went back to Boston, particularly in Boston, when he uh, took a position there, and perfected brain surgery. And well, why not, what do you mean by perfected? Well, he was able to get people on and off the operating table alive, which was a major advance. That helps. Um, yeah, and he, uh, with his meticulous technique, he kept bleeding at a minimum, and more importantly, he prevented post-operative infections. So, so, he, it, uh, so what? What you say? Uh, speak to a speak to the someone in a different language here. Um, what does it mean that he's perfecting technique? What were his techniques? Uh, he was. He, he, he was extremely detailed in the movements of his hands and the use of his instruments. He uh, took uh, uh, time to uh, work his way through brain tissue, which you know uh, has the consistency of gelatin, and uh, very easy to cause bleeding. He would minute. He would take minutely bleeding blood vessels and stop the bleeding in his way through brain substance to get at the uh, object of his. Uh, operation, whether it be a, a foreign body in the case of military trauma or a tumor, in the case of civilian problems, and um, he, would be, he would be able to remove the foreign body, the bullet or shrapnel, piece of shrapnel, or the tumor, and, and get back out of the brain substance, back his way out of it, uh, in the same fashion, uh, making sure that there was no bleeding, making sure the wound was clean of all uh, contamination like bacteria and so forth, and then close up the skull. Uh, and his operations uh, extended for hours. In fact, a major criticism of him during the uh, during the Great War, when he was operating uh, at the uh, in the field hospitals of the British, actually, uh, was that he just he took so much time, and they had so many casualties waiting, and he just felt that that was that time was irrelevant. He would instead of taking his tea break with the British surgeons, um, he would continue operating through lunch and dinner until he got the the cases done he sounds he, like, he took a he, he, sound, he took a lot of he took a lot of time to get get his work done he sounds like the very prototype as i read about him it sounds like the very prototype of the neurosurgeon of, of fiction yeah well or a fact if you know many neurosurgeons you, you you think they're they're all cut from the same cloth <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Um, uh, yeah, that's what I thought too. Uh, so there's techniques though, and I guess it's the important thing. This is a science. Those techniques could be replicated. It, was, it wasn't just the incredible skill of Harvey Cushing's hands that made this possible. Other people could go and do likewise. And they did. They, uh, he was, of course, a focal point of uh, uh, visiting surgeons at the front. Uh, even they came to his, his casualty clearing station, which was a British surgical hospital uh and watched him operate and uh, uh adopted his techniques uh, i think he laid the foundation for uh, meaningful uh, brain surgery from military trauma uh bef obviously beforehand many of these injuries were fatal and and, uh, and of course brain injuries are very dangerous anyway but mm -hmm. he was able to salvage a, a good number of these people and then, of course, after the war, uh, and, and I, I have to say that his experience during the Great War really cemented uh, his uh, belief that uh, if, if neurosurgery is done correctly, as he does it, uh, especially with trauma, that it, that it has a reasonable chance of salvaging the patient. He went back to Boston and, of course, uh, trained a whole generation of, of neurosurgeons. He, uh, 
a remarkable person. What, um, uh, just to quickly, um, is, and apologies if uh, people are eating, uh, what does it require to keep a wound, a, a brain? You, you, you've referred several times that he kept them clean. He kept the interior clean. How did he, what were the techniques he used to do that, particularly at the front? He would demand that the, 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 if, it were a, if he were going into the brain uh, through the skull, he would demand that the, first of all, the hair be shaved, uh, that the skin be uh, scrupulously scrubbed with soap and water, uh, and then um, painted with some type of antiseptic substance like iodine. And then uh, the operative area then carefully cordoned off with uh, towels or, or drapes of some sort so that the, and, and that the, the surgeon and assistants were equally scrupulous in their, the scrubbing of their hands and the wearing of sterile gloves and the gowns and so forth. And that only then did the operation begin. And uh, he, he wanted that operative area that he was going to enter, uh, that scalp and that, and that skull, to be absolutely without bacteria. Uh, and, you know, I think that kind of technique still applies to surgical procedures. I think the more meticulous we are with cleansing of the skin and, and making sure that uh, the area is... Uh, uh, cordoned off so that we keep all uh, extraneous uh, bacteria, skin bacteria, and so forth away, I think we still can reduce the, the uh, chance of wound infection after surgery, and he certainly did. And with the brain, that's particularly important because anything that happens within the skull in the brain, you got to imagine is dangerous. It's not like having an infection of your you know, of your leg, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, that's, where you, that's, where you, that's where you live. Yeah. So, so anyway. Well, speaking of legs, um, this brings us to the danger, Owen Thomas, the orthopedic splint and the dangers of a femur fracture, which was, uh, was eye-opening for me. So who is Owen Thomas and why is the orthopedic splint much more important than it sounds? Well, Owen Thomas uh, was, was a bone setter. He was not a, do a trained doctor. He was a bone setter and came from a long line of, bones, of Welsh bone setters. And what, what were bone setters? Well, they were basically um, a kind of a primitive form of chiropractor. They, they dealt with a lot of uh, uh, sprains and they dealt with arthritis and they dealt with the broken bones. Uh, they were sort of uh, the, the, phys the, the physician, if you will, to the common people, uh, especially those without means and really couldn't afford going to a doctor. So they were, they were very important um, uh, medical people for, for most communities. And, um, in the course of dealing with some of these major malformations, uh, of, of, uh, children, uh, he developed this splint that would keep the leg immobilized, but yet still allow the individual to walk around, uh, so that the leg could be immobilized for long periods of time. Which sounds um, completely banal. Of course, we. But that has a beginning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He he he. What did, he advocated. He he said to allow fractures to heal, rest the extremity, let it rest. And so, but you couldn't let somebody lay in bed for six weeks or eight weeks. That was crazy. So he allowed with this splint, with with this ability to keep the leg 
uh, uh, straightened and immobilized, the, the patients could actually get out of bed and, and move around. I mean, uh, they weren't terribly mobile, but at least they could get up on their other foot and kind of limp around. So, um, but these were mostly for uh, congenital or, or birth-related problems and for industrial accidents. And he eventually located in Liverpool, where uh, kind of a rowdy town, I guess, a lot of uh, dock workers and roughhousing and in- industrial injuries on the docks. Mm-hmm. He got a lot of experience with it. Um, so he, but his, his nephew, um, Robert Jones, really took this, this device, which had some popularity in, in Britain, but yeah, it wasn't any, any, any radical uh, uh, apparatus that, that people immediately grabbed onto. And he took this apparatus to the battlefield. Uh, a major problem with uh, a trauma, uh, one of the many problems with trauma early on, was that uh, even simple f- uh, fractures of the thigh were dangerous because of the amount of bleeding involved uh, and the inability to somehow immobilize these fractures to stop the bleeding. Now, with any kind of long bone fracture, like a thigh fracture or a fracture of the lower leg, um, if you don't immobilize the bone, it constantly grates and tears at surrounding blood vessels and causes more and more bleeding. If you immobilize the bone and put it in apposition, then that that movement will stop. And the other benefit is, I don't know if you've ever had a broken bone, but it is exquisitely painful. And only by immobilizing can you hope to reduce that amount of pain. Um, so he took this, this, this splint of his uncle's and he said, well, you know, let's try this. And uh, let me let me backtrack a little bit. Trying to get a trying to get a, a, a victim out of the trenches with a with a with a <sighs> say a femur fracture, you can it was not possible. These these trenches were so narrow and it had so many bends in them to to uh, you know to guard against uh, infiltration by enemy snipers and so forth that that you couldn't you couldn't navigate through them with a with a patient on the average stretcher um and they tried various means and of course trying to navigate with these femur fractures these guys would just go berserk in pain uh only when they started using this device of his uh, uncles this thomas splint were, were these people able to uh, at least immobilize the extremity and and get these poor individuals evacuated? And what they eventually found was that by immobilizing the fractures, um, they reduced the bleeding, reduced the chance of, of hemorrhagic shock, traumatic shock, and actually uh, improved, dramatically improved, the the survival rate, let alone the disability rate. Right, because this is what I, I I should have thought about, but I I don't I just don't think about femur fractures in my everyday life. But when you think about, it, you've got yourself, I guess, was that the largest bone in the body or one of them? Yes. And, and you yes. you've broken it and turned it into a potential spear, poking yes. and stabbing and around all the rest yes. of the really interesting blood veins <laughs> like yeah, the, yeah. that are there and, and things, uh, you, you can do a great deal of, of, of damage by doing that. Yes, absolutely. And I think your description of an internal spear is right on. Um, let's uh, finish off with two items which are extremely um, present uh, in one way or the other. It's certainly in the last year, uh, 20 years of, uh, of the war on terror, and uh, in the last two years, uh, shell shock that used to use the, the term that they would use in the First World War, 
uh, and the flu. So let's begin with shell shock because in it, it's a fascinating moment in which Freud is really becoming into his peak, uh, and yet at the same time, actual psychiatric medicine uh, is its foundations are being laid. Um, at the same time, I, and I should say actual psychiatric medicine, because, you know, uh, Freudian psychotherapy uh, can't, I, I don't think that a, a someone suffering from trauma, of, from shell shock, really needs to be told uh, or really needs to be led through a process of therapy to figure out why they want to kill their father because they want to have sex with their mother. Um, and uh, <laughs> they could probably use some other some other interventions. And then, of course, the, the flu is extremely relevant at the moment. You know, uh, shell shock was termed shell shock because they felt that the actual concussion of exploding shells damaged the brain. And, you know, we are still uh, exploring well, it's, it's that a possibility. Very, a very of, interesting possibility. That, uh, yeah. Periods where we talked about little else in the last uh, 20 years, it would seem. Absolutely. And there were people back in the Great War who actually could demonstrate in some uh, autopsies uh, brain specimens that mm-hmm. there there had been small areas of hemorrhage. Um, uh, so they ascribed it initially to the actual concussive effect of shells, which I which I still believe was correct. However, there were a number of individuals who indeed uh, suffered not necessarily concussive uh, trauma to their brain, but certainly emotional trauma. And the emotional trauma was, uh, as you might imagine, this uh, terribly uh, uh, defensive type war on the Western Front um, where, where soldiers mostly hunkered down in trenches and um, uh, did little else but uh, weather these artillery barrages, um, the occasional sniper bullet, and then the, the much feared uh, offensive where they would be called to leap over the, the uh, uh, trench and march uh, sometimes in parade ground fra- fashion to the, to the enemy's trenches all the while uh, uh, under withering machine gun fire. It was just, it was just horrible. I mean, I, you can't imagine that uh, after a while you wouldn't just go uh, uh, crazy uh, with fear and dread and, and, and more, more than anything, more than anything, it was this, this feeling of impotence mm-hmm. that, that as a soldier, as a soldier trained in the deadly arts, they had little power to, to either, uh, conquer the enemy or to, to even protect their own life. Right. I, I think we, I should have emphasized, emphasized this earlier, but I think something like 70% of all casualties in the great war from artillery fire. Yes, um, and so uh, that explains a lot of the the sort of the bodily trauma. But then, what you're describing, the sort of impotence, comes from being under something that about which you have you can't do anything about it. If you're an infantry, right? And now, right. If you if you're charging or working your way towards enemy and uh, uh, defenses, and you can identify a machine gun position here or uh, a group of soldiers there, you can you can organize your tactics to address that you have control over that if you're standing in a trench and you you hear that whistle coming and you're not you don't know whether that thing's going to land uh a mile from you or a foot from you every time that happens you think is this it you know is this the last time uh and you see the of course you see the the results of these explosions you know you're covered with your friend's blood and brains and bone as they explode, and it, it just it's just totally demoralizing. And you know that the stupidity of tactics, I guess, worked too, in that you felt that 
there there was no point in all of this that that you were working under commanders who were absolutely nuts and had no idea really what they were going to do and you knew the next offensive was going to be as worthless as the last so what the as i indicated the some of the answers are not really answers at all but nonetheless people are starting to tease out the very beginnings of psychiatric interventions they are and i think pro- i don't know this for a fact but i suspect that the psychiatric casualties from the great war surpassed those of the second world war or uh, wars since then whether it be vietnam or korea or or the uh, current uh, iraqi uh, Afghanistan conflict. So I, I would imagine they did. I don't have any numbers. I'm not even sure those numbers are available, but I can only imagine that the psychiatric casualties were far greater during the Great War because of the nature of the of, of tactics and the and the stupendous violence of the weapons used. And these poor guys. I mean, they 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 were hardly cowards. They were heroes in every sense of the uh, that was not recognized at first. They were treated as malingers and cowards, and it's, it was horrible because they had uh, served bravely, and um, they just suffered the effects of, of prolonged, senseless slaughter. So, but was there at the beginning the understanding that there might be a a, a physiological component other uh, to this? Um, uh, other than shell shock, yes. How about the other people who were just, um, was there the beginnings of a sort of psychiatry in the sense of a physiological change to the brain other than those, those the trauma of the, sh- the, the that we already discussed? Well, I think, they, I think that the uh, pioneers and, and the care of these people began to realize that there were other components involved. There were uh, the lack of sleep, lack of good food. Uh, some of these people were dehydrated. They were cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to uh, the psychological effect. So I think these all might have played a role. And whether that altered the physiology so that uh, normal mental functions could could dominate. I don't know. Uh, I think they suspected they could. I still wonder about, you know, to some degree, the effect of repeated concussion on the on the brain, and um, I still think that was a factor. I think it still is today. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's led to changes in helmet design, um, you know, everywhere, uh, and and other other aspects uh, since the war in Iraq and since the IED attacks. Yes. Yes, I, I believe that's true. And we've seen a little bit of that even in, for God's sakes, football. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, absolutely. that re- repeated, repeated head trauma. Now, that is more of a chronic nature, granted, but uh, I think it does play a role even acutely if it's prolonged and repeated. I think it does play a role. Well, let's finally let's talk about the flu, um, which, uh, as someone has observed, should be called perhaps the Kansas flu instead of the Spanish flu. Uh, right, and- right. But- Right. I mean, the, the, the common feeling was that it originated in Spain. It was called the Spanish flu. It probably originated at Fort Riley, Kansas, in the middle of nowhere. So uh, now why it happened, where the virus came from, the influenza virus, um, I don't think anybody really knows, just like we still don't know where today's pandemic actually came. Who is, who is, who is patient zero? I mean, who, who knows? I think we can almost identify patient zero in the 1918-1919 influenza a pandemic, um, but it you know it quickly spread because of the the concentration of young 
uh, adults who have been recruited or uh, enlisted in the army, and these people were moved around with for that for that period of time with 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 great speed uh, to various locations on the East Coast uh, to uh, embark on uh, troop ships to France, and once they got in France, uh, they also were uh, quickly moved around. So the the ability of this virus to quickly spread was was made a lot easier by the nature of uh, the times by the fact that this is a war e- uh, effort that the soldiers were congregating in 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 large numbers in military camps for training and and for bivouacking and then put on crowded troop ships and sent over and and of course uh, eventually uh, the flu was transmitted even to the enemy and caused uh, some consternation uh, with them. Mm-hmm. So what were what were scientific responses to this? I guess the last. I'm not counting tuberculosis. I guess the last sort of sudden surprising outbreak of a, outbreak of a hitherto unknown disease would have been cholera. Yeah, the, well, I mean, nobody really understood. I mean, they they tried to find the etiologic agent, the the causative agent for this, and uh, they were misled here and there by certain bacteria. I don't know if they ever actually figured it was a virus until sort of late in the pandemic. Um, they had nothing, no way to deal even with common pneumonia. So. The only efforts they could put out were preventative efforts, which we had, believe it or not, the same efforts that we put forth with uh, uh, the the current pandemic. You know, mask up and keep your social distancing. Uh, Those were the two key factors involved in trying to prevent the spread of this, just like we did probably until the vaccine became available uh, last year. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? It is really amazing. uh, Um. Let's uh, wrap this up. You've, uh, as I, uh, I, as I was reading the book, and uh, before I looked at your CV, I was wondering um, what would be um, similar advances that came from other wars to modern medicine. And I guess with um, with with the Second World War, it has to be uh, penicillin, and basically the idea of, of antibiotics. Period uh, would have been the result of the Second World War. Well, I think you, when you look at um, the the advances as a result of the Great War, it, it was an exponential advance over what had uh, been practiced in the decades before. Mm-hmm. Since then, there have been certainly progressive and steady advances in wound care and casualty care. Uh, the Second World War sort of um, um, uh, f- further developed the concept of forward surgical care of casualties, particularly in the Pacific. Um the, the, the wider use of blood transfusions um, and, the as you said, the use of penicillin. Um, in Vietnam, it was the uh, discovery that um, we could uh, resuscitate people in profound shock um, mm-hmm. by using other substances than blood, but we paid a penalty for it. Uh, we Although we uh, corrected some of the uh, long-term problems of prolonged shock, such as kidney failure. Um, in uh, Iraq, uh, it has been the, the progressive understanding of uh, abilities to stop bleeding early uh, by the, by various maneuvers, uh, the quick uh, the the quick evacuation of casualties from the battlefield to uh, to surgical hospitals and and this time actually hundreds of miles away. Uh, I, I would say within 12 hours or so, a casualty in Iraq or Afghanistan could be at a major medical center in Germany. And under, under, undergo the same type of expert surgical care that formerly had 
had to be done much nearer the front lines. Mm-hmm. But I think I don't. I think there have been study advances in wound care and shock. Nothing of the significance, I believe, that occurred as a result of the Great War. It, it is. Uh, it's an extraordinary chronicle of of a. It is like, and this is an unfortunate metaphor. It's like a fireworks display of of all, that. Suddenly, there's the that. I mean, again, things have been building for twenty to thirty years from Pasteur at least onwards. Um, but all of a sudden, all these things are implemented simultaneously. All these people, when you start to look, I look, was looking back and forth from chapters, looking at the people and the dates and realizing, oh, they were like working, you know, within 20, 50 miles of each other along the same section of the front line, all doing these tremendous interventions to try to do something about the crisis in which they were involved. Right. Exactly. Um, I suppose one one thing that strikes me that as uh, over the last 40 years is as perhaps uh, post-Vietnam is... And, is um, and this gets us back to um, gets us back to Harvey Cushing in some ways is the ways in which psychiatry has psychiatric treatments have advanced and also are coming more in harmony with neurosurgery. Um, I was thinking just um, when Congressman Gabrielle Giffords was shot through the head through the brain with a nine millimeter slug. Um, that I, I don't know when that became a survivable wound, um, and. Uh, but somehow now that can be dealt with. Um, and also that psychiatry has gotten to a point where we have a, a slightly better understanding of how the, 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 the brain works so that people are able to engage in therapies to overcome uh, tremendous trauma to the brain. I think, you know, one thing that has happened over the past decades has been an effort to protect the, the fighting soldier to a better degree uh, from external trauma, better better uh, material for helmet and body armor, um, and, and more attention paid to uh, tactics that minimize the chance of, of human death and, and injury. Uh, and I think um, this has been uh, had a great impact on the psyche of the fighting man and woman uh, that they are uh, they know that there is a concerted effort to protect them and still allow them to obtain attain their objective, but protect them from senseless, unnecessary uh, injury. And I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, we know there have been tragic casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan, no doubt. Uh, nothing that approached even that scene in Vietnam or the Second World War or the First World War. Yeah. Yeah. My guest today has been Thomas Helling. He's professor of surgery, head of the Division of General Surgery at the University of Mississippi in Jackson, and author of The Great War and the Birth of Modern Medicine. Thomas Helling, thank you so much for being a guest on Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. <laughs>